John on the island Patmos, directed by the Lord to dictate these letters that he wanted sent to his churches. And in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom i love i rebuke and discipline so be zealous and repent behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come into him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter of Laodicea, perhaps the most well-known of the seven. Certainly, Ephesus is well-known, the lost of their first love, but this letter is one that if anyone has studied the seven letters, it sticks with you. It, it stays with you. You remember this one, I think, more than the others. At least that's true for me. The lukewarm Laodiceans, it's even an alliteration, so it's easier perhaps to remember. But I think it's also well known because it's, it's lukewarmness. It speaks of this concept and it's well known, this letter, because it speaks of that concept. It's a most deadly and, and yet most common disease, I think, within Christianity, lukewarmness. Though the Lord could not have been more clear about what it means to follow him, men often get the idea that you can have Christ and the world at the same time. And I believe in some measure, spiritual maturity can be measured by how much we understand that truth. How much we understand what the call to follow Christ is. The world, the false prophet, will sing his song that is lovely in the ears, tell you that you can have the world and God at the same time, you can have Christ and your own will at the same time, they'll tell you you can have fellowship with God and fellowship with the world, but James tells us in chapter 4, verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We think it's easy to be believe, the lukewarm Christian can come to believe that you can seek the riches of the earth and the riches of heaven at the same time. And yet the Lord himself told us in Matthew 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one 
and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The lukewarm Christian, though, can begin to believe that he can be at peace with God and at peace with the world. But this is not true either, according to the Lord, according to the Scripture, according to Jesus himself, when he said in John chapter 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you, and he'd been preparing them with some very stark realities of what it was going to be for them to follow him when he left. And he said to them, I say these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So we see that it isn't possible to have peace, pure, unadulterated, unassailed peace with the world and peace with God. At the same time, you will be at peace with one or the other or neither. And I will tell you, by the way, that's likely where the lukewarm Christian lives his life, at peace with neither not fully with God because he got one foot in the world and not peace with the world because he's got one foot in with God. No continuing, no place of comfort to be found. And Jesus writing to this church reminds them of this truth and he tells them in, in a stark, un, uh, he holds nothing back and says to them, you're, you're lukewarm. You, you cannot Live with peace in the world and peace with God. You cannot serve God and Christ. You cannot seek your own will and the will of God at the same time. And this letter is one that hits close to home for all of us because I will say this before going any further. I, I believe that it is just true that we all struggle with lukewarmness at times in our life. I believe it's true. I believe our fallenness makes that true. I believe that there are times in our life where we are closer to the Lord and warmth of heart and mind to His will. And then there are times that it cannot be said that we are in that place, but we're colder and more distant from Him. Not frozen, we're lukewarm, somewhere in the middle. But what ends up happening when we live this way, when the Laodiceans lived this way, what ends up happening for them and for us to attempt to combine peace with the world and God, to attempt to combine serving God and serving ourselves at the same time. It, it's a mixture of hot and cold and ends up with a lukewarm heart. Some hot and some cold. I think it's true that we desperately want the words of the soothing false prophet to be true when he tells us we can have God and the world. We want that to be true, sometimes so desperately that we fall victim to that song of earthly and heavenly peace at the same time. But Oswald Chambers said this, the teaching of Jesus Christ does not appear at first to be what it is. At first it appears to be beautiful and pious and lukewarm, but before long it becomes a ripping and tearing torpedo which splits to atoms every preconceived notion a man ever had. This, following Christ, is not a lukewarm effort. It's not that that lends itself to such a, a condition spiritually. And once we understand, truly understand, the call to follow Christ. We realize that the call is not to simply add God to our earthly lives 
and end up lukewarm Christians, but instead this call is to deny the coldness of the world and abandon it and forsake it and the sin that is in the world and our own and cultivate a warmth in our heart that grows hotter and hotter as the days progress in our life. But often we struggle like the Laodiceans did with lukewarmness and I will tell you that this is not a death sentence. There is hope. Christ lays it out. But there are times that we need to struggle with the reality that we have grown perhaps lukewarm in our Christian walk. And the Lord tells us what it is that we ought to do, and we want to look at that in a moment. It's similar to what he has said in the previous letters, but I find it interesting that the Lord specifically wrote to this church about this specific condition of lukewarmness. I believe it, again, to be one of the most difficult things for us to defend ourselves against in the world in which we live, in the culture in which we live, especially and in particular where persecution is so light among us. And I am not, I am not unthankful for that. I am not unthankful for the lack of persecution, for the lack of, of oppression that Christian people, and I know we're beginning to see it, but, in, but where we are, it's, it is light even still, but we're beginning to see it. And I don't want to dismiss that blessing of the Lord. And yet at the same time, we understand that that lack of persecution can tend towards lukewarmness of our hearts. And so we want to be aware of it. We want to think about it. We want to pray about it. We want to ask one another to hold ourselves accountable to one another about the reality of the lukewarm Christian life. Jesus writes to this lukewarm church, and he says these self-descriptions. In every letter, the Lord had self-descriptions, and he says, thus says the amen. We know what amen means. In the Greek, it means so be it. The one, in what he says, so be it. Thus says the sovereign Christ, the Son of God. This is the words of this one, the amen, the faithful and true witness. As I began studying and thinking through this letter and Often I'll just start with just my questions and just start listing them. No order, no, no, no rhyme, no reason. You just begin to, to spew out what's in your mind and your heart as you read the passage. You try to begin to ask God to cultivate in your heart what he's saying. And I remember writing, witness of what? What is he the witness to? He's the true witness, and we know that. He's the faithful and true witness, what he says is true, what he always says is true, but what is it that he witnessed? And, and I came back and I circled back to that. And after study and preparation and thought and prayer, the answer came quite easily, the witness of everything. He's witnessed everything. There's nothing that has escaped his attention from the beginning to the end and everything in between. There's not a half an hour in your day that the Lord Jesus Christ has not witnessed. And he's the true and faithful witness of the assessment of that half hour of your life, mine, of the seven billion and now more, no doubt, people on the planet. He knows every passing second of their life, and he is the faithful and true witness, and he is the one to whom we will all one day kneel. And he will know the facts of the case of our life. He will know your heart, and he will know mine, and he does now. This is the one who is making this assessment that is a painful assessment, no doubt to hear. You're lukewarm, Jesus says to them. 
And he's concerned for them. And he loves them. And he knows that that is a damaging way to live, not only for them, but for those among whom they were to be witnesses. But this is the one speaking, the faithful and true witness, the one who has witnessed everything, the beginning of God's creation. And we know that does not mean that God created him. This, the emphasis, the sense of this is that Jesus, through him, is all things created. That's what John told us as well in chapter 1, verse 3 of his gospel. All things were made through him, that is Jesus. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the beginning. It's through him that creation came. And now he is established again who is writing. There's no doubt who the author of this accusation is, who the one who is laying the claim. It is Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness, the Amen. And we know before the Alpha and the Omega and all the other self-descriptions he has given. And he comes to this point and he says to the Laodiceans, you're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. He has no commendation to give this church. With a letter to the, to the Ephesians, you remember that he, he rebuked them. You've lost your first love. But you also remember he commended them. Your, your doctrine is strong. It is solid. And you are correct in your doctrine. But you've lost your first love. To other churches, he had commendation with rebuke. Here, for the Odysseans, he has nothing commendable to say to them. I don't suppose that means by itself that there was nothing commendable to say, but we can say this with certainty, there was nothing commendable that the Lord chose to share. He says to them, you're lukewarm. And I just want to speak to you today a little bit about this condition. Lukewarmness is akin, it's, it's a cousin, we might say, to apathy. Lukewarmness. Something the Lord surely hates. In fact, he hates it enough that he tells us quite plainly and quite vividly, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I have no taste for lukewarmness, Jesus says. The lukewarm Christian is, is, is also at the, at the very same time, and I find this interesting, it's the kind of Christian that the Lord says he's going to spew out of his mouth, but the lukewarm Christian at the very same time seems to be the only kind of Christian that the world will tolerate. The world teals Quite kindly, most for the most part, with lukewarm Christians because they don't upset the apple cart as much as the Christian who is on fire for the Lord. Yet with Christ, it's an abomination, and he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. The lukewarm Christian feels cold to those who are close to the Lord and feels hot to the unbeliever. And thus, the lukewarm Christian has no comfortable companionship. No comfortable companionship, not truly anywhere that you can be at rest. Not hot enough to be comfortable with men and women intent on serving God and zealously so from a heart of love for God and for a lost world. Lukewarm Christian, those kinds of Christians, they're a little too hot, they're a little too intense, they're a little too serious about their faith in Christ, and they're not comfortable with them. And yet, they're not comfortable with a cold, sinful, dark world either because they're, they know that God is true. They know He's real. And in a sense, even, they know that they've been saved by His grace. They can remember that time He converted them and changed them. And yet, they're cold. They're, they're, so they're warm enough that the cold world is not comfortable, but they're cool enough that an intense Christian faith is also uncomfortable. And so, you live your life without any comfortable place. 
That's what a lukewarm Christian ends up finding himself in, and I say this through experience, but also, more importantly, Word of God. I, I've wondered, and others have as well, that why, why would Christ prefer us to be cold? That's a, he says, you're neither, Luke, you're neither hot nor cold, so I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So the sense is that if you were hot, and we understand that, if you were intensely following me, I would, I would continue to maintain you in my presence. But, but I'd rather you be cold than lukewarm. Why would he rather you be cold? I, I think perhaps one answer is that the lukewarm Christian, because to be lukewarm is to claim outwardly that we believe in the things the Lord has said and yet deny them in every practical sense of our lives is why Christ, in one sense, prefers hot or cold. Don't claim it. And then in all, every practical way in which you live your life, deny it. George Campbell Morgan, well-known preacher from late 1800s and early 1900s, said this, the things we profess to believe are of such a nature that we cannot be lukewarm without practically denying them. Better be cold, be frozen. Better abandon all profession of interest in sacred things than to pretend to believe them and sing about them and yet be lukewarm. We work far more harm in our age by tepid character than our open denial of Christ. Hot or cold? choose are we not given that call again and again because a cold heart does not as easily lead to the spiritually deadly tendency of self-deception about the condition of our souls before god that's why it's better to be cold than lukewarm lukewarm allows one to believe that all is well which is exactly what the laodiceans thought everything's fine and it tends to a self-deception. Our own deception of our own condition. Lukewarmness is a serious problem. And it's one of the most difficult spiritual ailments to self-diagnose. To the lukewarm Christian, everything again appears fine. It, it appears like everything is just fine. He believes himself blessed or herself blessed with everything that she needs. His material needs appear to have been fully met, and there's a, an assumption and a logical leap that is taken that is not, not necessarily true, but the logical leap is if I am prepared, if I am well provided for in this life, then God must be pleased with me. If I have not run into too many terrible things in the world, then God must be pleased with me. All of my material goods have been provided for, and we know, by the way, that all good things come from God, that he is the one that provides it all. And so we look around at our material possessions and our earthly lives, and we then think and we make the logical error with the logical leap and to say that God is pleased with me because everything seems to be fine outwardly. When inwardly, there is a lukewarmness that has taken over our lives. The lukewarm Christian believes everything is fine. Our spiritual conditions are determined by the, the, the warmness of our hearts and not the blessings outwardly of our lives. And the Lord does not describe this condition again as a minor sickness, just a small thing, insignificant to be, don't be overly concerned about it. Listen to how he labels them. 
He says, you think you're fine. You think you're rich. You think you've got everything that you need. But Jesus says to them, you're wretched. This is, this is not the Lord Jesus Christ of Joel Osteen or any other that would reduce and, and, and remove the strength of the call of God upon our lives. Jesus says to the Laodicean church, you are wretched. Another word for that in the Greek is pathetic. <clears throat> you are pitiable, he says. You're miserable, you're poor. But and it, it implies in that Greek word a continuous state of poverty. Not only poor now, you're in a continual state of spiritual poverty and you're you're blind, and, and this word is figurative, and it means to not be able to understand. You, you can't come to a place of understanding. What you think about life is not right. You can't come to a place of understanding about your Christian life, and he calls them as well naked, without protection, without covering. And we want to consider the striking difference between what the Laodiceans saw in themselves when they looked at themselves and what the Lord saw when he looked at them. They saw peace, prosperity, and abundance. The Lord saw wallowing in spiritual squalor and poverty. But this again is not a death sentence. The Lord writes this letter because he wants his people to be close to him in this life and abandoned hope in the world and interested and consumed with following him and so he writes to them and he identifies the condition and it's painful to hear that news it is damaging even perhaps to our religious pride that satan can instill in our lives and can make us think that we have some some place to uphold among the people that in which we live but he comes to this laodicean church and he says you are lukewarm and he gives them the diagnosis but he gives them the remedy as well and he says, this is the remedy, buy from me. Buy from me. Buy what? Three things, gold refined by fire, white garments, and salve. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so that our work will endure. And you remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he said that you can't build upon any foundation other than Jesus Christ. But when you have that foundation, you build upon that foundation either wood with wood, hay, and stubble or with gold, silver, and precious stones. Those are your choices in which you're going to build your life upon. And the Lord says, buy from me gold refined by fire. And Paul also told the Corinthians, I believe, he said that in the end, this judgment that is going to come is going to consume the wood, the hay, and the stubble of this world, and what is going to last is the gold, silver, and precious stones. Buy from me white garments so that our shame might be covered. And I salve. Remember, he said, you're blind? He says, so buy from me I salve. So apply it to your eyes. Spiritually, the word of God as it infiltrates our mind and heart and changes the way we look at the world and see it and all of a sudden it begins to make much more sense. Buy from the ISAF so that you might see. And I thought about this as I, again, was preparing and I thought he says to us to buy from him. To buy from him. Something must be exchanged in order to buy something from someone, correct? 
Used to be, many, many, many years ago, under a bartering system, I'd trade you a sheep for uh, a, a couple of lambs, I don't know, whatever the trade might be, some chickens, and you'd, have, you'd barter. But there was, there was a bartering system, but now we have this thing called currency. And these dollars, we won't get into all of that, but, but the point is, in order for me to buy anything, when I go to the store, I give them a currency. I give them money, and I take the goods from that store that I want. And the Lord says to us, buy from me. Well, if he says to buy from me, then there must be some currency exchanged. There must be some transaction that's been made, right? You can't buy something without a transaction being made. Well, what is the currency with which the Lord Jesus Christ deals? It's not the U.S. dollar. It's not any currency that this world knows about by itself. What is this currency? What, what is it that you go to God and you, you pay for, you buy? And again, don't think for a minute that I'm saying you earn, you merit salvation. It's not what the Lord is saying, and it certainly is not what I am saying. But he is saying to these loud dissidents, you are lukewarm. Here's the remedy. Buy from me. Well, to buy, you've got to give some currency. And the currency in which the Lord Jesus Christ exchanges is your heart. Your will, your volition, you. That's the currency that the Lord deals with. When we buy from the Lord, that's the only currency of exchange that he will accept. It's the only one he's interested in. The only currency that he requires. Thus, by the way, this is good news. You might say, you might be taken aback by that, maybe, if you've not thought about it before. But I want to tell you, that's good news. You want to know why that's good news? Because absolutely every one of us has that currency sufficient to buy from the Lord with. You have enough. You might have nothing in the world. You've got enough currency to buy that that is most precious in all of eternity and in the world. You possess all the necessary currency to make this purchase that the Lord pro pro provides and lays out for the lukewarm Christian. And yet, no currency, even though we all possess it, no currency is of such value as this. My heart. My will. So in a way, we are all rich beyond measure. Because I have the currency that the Lord exchanges. That he will take. Your earthly wealth is not what he wants. He gave it to you in the first place. First place. Your earthly talents. Don't impress him. He gave them to you in the first place. But if we give the Lord the currency he desires. Our hearts. Our will ourselves that he will exchange that and we we can exchange our lives that he exchanged for us as he died on the cross and bled and died and won the victory and now is the possessor of life eternal and he will give that to us but we must buy it from him and by the way you'll give him your talents your time and your money when you've given him your heart so don't misunderstand that either. 
If we give him that currency that he, that he desires, he'll receive not just those external things, but he'll receive what he's really interested in. And so my question for all of us, are you giving God your tithes, your offerings, your time, and maybe even your talents, but you're withholding your heart, the only currency that really settles the transaction? Know that he will not trade these things for the gold tried in the fire, the white garment, or the eye salve. It's not what he's going to exchange it for. Buy from me, the Lord says. And be zealous and repent. There's your remedy. Buy from me these things with the currency that I take. And then be zealous. Warm up. Which is what the word zealous means. Heat. Warm up and repent. There's hope in that. There's hope available here for the lukewarm Christian. Lukewarmness, listen, it's the natural... Lukewarmness is the natural temperature of the room, isn't it? it just, it's whatever temperature. If you have a glass of water and you sit in a room long enough, the water is going to eventually settle at the temperature of the room. Something must act upon that water in order to make it hotter or make it colder. On its own, it's going to simply remain lukewarm. And that is as so with our Christian lives our hearts we will remain the temperature of the world that we allow ourselves to live in that's the temperature of our hearts is whatever world we allow ourselves long enough to live in be that hot cold or lukewarm that's why by the way church attendance is so important and reading your bible is so important and praying and thinking and meditating is so important because it we must be acted upon or we tend to become lukewarm and the longer we go lukewarm this world is right there to bring its frigid coldness and blow that cold air of sin over our hearts and we become not merely lukewarm but perhaps cold and in some sense again there's some benefit to that because at least then perhaps you can come to the place and come to your senses because the coldness eventually takes its effect upon you but lukewarmness you can live in for a long long time and be un unaware but at least the coldness can wake you up and that's good the Lord stands at the door and knocks he says fellowship is offered if we'll hear and we will open do you do you hear what Jesus the Son of God has just said I am standing at the door and I am knocking what a shame what a shame to hear the knocking and not open the door to this one who says, if you'll hear and open the door, I'll, I'll come in to you and I'll eat with you and, and you with me and we'll have fellowship. What a sense of loss to hear the knocking and not open the door. What a sense of loss will be felt when the sound of that knocking becomes nothing more than the memory of that not knocking haunting your eternal soul. You can hear it in your mind, but it's no longer the actual knocking of the Lord. It's your memory of when he knocked on your heart's door and you refused to open it. That, that, that knocking will haunt you. 
And the Lord says to it, to us now, to these Laodiceans, I'm standing at the door, and you say, how do you merit, how do you, how do you bring all this into, into some theological construct to make sure you're not preaching, you're going to lose your salvation? I'll tell you this, we're not going to, we're not going to miss anything when we get to heaven and the Lord has saved us and we are His forever, but we are going to suffer loss for the things that we did not open the door to when the Lord knocked on it. And if you're lost and you don't open the door when he knocks, then forever you will remain that way with no hope, no, no ability to bridge the gap between you and, and life. As the rich man found out when he opened his eyes, and there's that old poor beggar Lazarus up there in heaven. He didn't have anything in this world. Why did he have such a difficult time in life and he seemingly apparently was right with God and I, a rich man, who God blessed with all kinds of wealth and I was distant from him because it doesn't have anything to do with the outward things. It has everything to do with the inward things, the things that really matter. And the inward things, this, this man, this rich man, who by the way in the story was the one without a name, and Lazarus had a name. And Jesus says to those he doesn't know, depart from me, I never knew you. And to those that he knows, he's already told us in these letters, I give you the name. I know who you are. That's what matters. But what a sense of loss when that knocking is no longer the actual knocking of the Lord and just a memory of it. So there's hope, though, with repentance. There's always hope. There is a path to God available. There is a path out of the lukewarmness that can so easily set up in our lives. And that is what he said, buy from me these things, be zealous and repent. And he gives us promise, a place with Christ on his throne, a place to sit there. And I love how he said that, a place to sit with him. Struggling against lukewarmness in this world is going to be a continual effort. There will not be a point in time where you're going to be able to stop. It's like, I remember like many little boys, I was enamored with sharks. I read as much about them as I could. I was just fascinated by them. And I remember learning, and I don't really know if this is true actually now, but I remember learning at the time, it said, you know, a shark can't ever stop swimming. It's got to keep, it's got to keep swimming in order for the gills to take in the water and turn it into oxygen. If it stops swimming, it suffocates. Does that not sound like the Christian life? You gotta keep swimming or you're gonna suffocate. This world is going to take you where it wants you to go. It's a continual struggle. It's a labor every day or you'll, or you'll end up lukewarm. You'll end up the temperature of the room that you're in. I wonder how many Christians have ended their lives lukewarm. I dare say it's many. Saved, yes. Yet so as by fire, as Paul said, but lukewarm. Living a lukewarm life, building with wood, hay, and straw that they walked away from and nobody else cared about. Instead of the gold and the silver and the precious stones that will be used to bring honor and glory to the Son of God in heaven forever. But ended their life lukewarm. Satan will batter you, he will toss you, he will send you down roads of apathy and 
and brokenheartedness over loss of this world, but the Lord wants to remind us of the need to ever be on watch for that. And I'll close today with these words. The weakness that is in lukewarmness. And these, this is, this is a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Found it, found it interesting, and I, I, I think you will too. Five thousand members of a church, all lukewarm, Spurgeon says, will be five thousand impediments. But a dozen earnest, passionate spirits, determined that Christ shall be glorified, and souls one must be more than conquerors. In their very weakness and fewness will reside capacities for being the more largely blessed of God. Better nothing than lukewarmness. What temperature are you, am I, going to leave here today with? I thought of this, and I'll close here. Second Timothy chapter 1, and I know Paul is speaking to a minister. It's applicable to every child of God in this sense. Verse 6 of chapter 1. I remind you, Paul says to Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Fan it into flame. Every day, we're either fanning that flame of godliness in our life, and when we stop fanning that flame, we drift toward lukewarmness and settle at the temperature of the world in which we live. Now, I know that this can feel as though it's a message of rebuke, and it was, and there's no denying that. We can't paint it beautiful. We can't call it what it isn't. It's a message of rebuke. But do you remember what Jesus said in the middle of it? We've talked about this again even recently. I rebuke those that I love. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you anything. But I love you. And this is, a, this is the truth that I think, again, this idea of lukewarmness, it's not, this is not a dragon I think we slay once. I think it must be wrestled with every day.